0: If you have your Bibles this morning, turn with me to Matthew chapter 24. Matthew chapter 24. If anybody notices, check your clock. Let's get busy, all right? Matthew chapter... Sorry, chapter 26. Matthew chapter 26. As you know, we're coming into Easter a little late this year, but we are coming into the Easter season. And so I felt directed to begin and open the doors for our Easter season uh, that we will be celebrating in the coming weeks and the next two weeks. So Matthew chapter 26, and I'll begin reading from verse number 1. And when Jesus had finished all of these sayings, he said to his disciples, You know that after two days the Passover is coming and the Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. Then the chief priest and the elders of the people gathered in the palace of the high priest, whose name was Caiaphas, and plotted together in order to arrest Jesus by stealth and kill him. But they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar among the people. Now when Jesus was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leopard, a woman came up to him with an alabaster flask, a very expensive ointment, And she poured it on his head as he reclined at the table. And when the disciples saw it, they were indignant, saying, Why this waste? For this could have been sold for a large sum and given to the poor. But Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why do you trouble this woman? For she has done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you, but you will not always have me. In pouring this ointment on my body, she has done it to prepare me for burial." Truly I say to you, wherever this gospel is proclaimed, in the whole world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. Father, again, we are humbled and so grateful to be here this morning, to have this opportunity to open your word, and we thank you for the reading of the word of God, this sword that cuts us both ways. And Father, we ask right now as we began our time of looking into your scriptures, we've worshiped you, we've lifted our hands in adoration to you. But now we come to the meat of our service, Lord. And it's not my words, but it's the words that you have placed in the hearts of us this morning. So I want to ask you right now to anoint the lips that speak it this morning and the ears, that li- the ears that listen this morning. In your name we pray, and everyone says, Amen and Amen. Easter is among us, and there's, there are all too many people who when we think about the Easter season and we think about the death of Jesus Christ, we get this perception in our mind that it's some tragic accident, that Jesus was some victim among us. I, um, I don't want this thought to enter your mind, Okay. Oftentimes, we think for a bleak moment that God lost control. For just a brief moment or for a few days that God was not in power. Now, I don't want to diminish the suffering that Jesus did on the cross. Don't think I am taken away for what Jesus did for us. Don't think I'm taken away for the crown of thorns. Don't think I'm taken away from the lashes upon his back. All of that is significance because why? Who did he do it for? He did it for us. So it's very significant, but it's not headline news of some tragic accident. When I was a youngster, and I know it happened to me once in our class of 250 that we graduated, the news one morning was that a young man in our class had a tragic car accident and was killed instantly. And when we went to school on monday that was something of news it was tragedy that surfaced throughout our school just a few weeks ago we woke up to the news that a great earthquake had struck japan and a tsunami came and struck down all of the people that were there a lot of the thousands of people that were in the wake of that tsunami that was tragic news they were victims it wasn't the morning newspaper where we read about another murder, and we saw of another victim that was gunned down or shot down or wherever the case may be. My point is this. The death of Jesus Christ on the cross was no accident. It was ordained of God. Put this in your in your memory bank this, this week, this morning, as you think about Easter and about the, the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. God was in control at all times. God was still on the throne. He was still the great I am, but God was still in control during Easter season. The idea, I don't know where the idea comes from. It doesn't come from the gospels. The gospel writers are very careful to demonstrate that the death of Jesus Christ was not only the purpose of God, And the purpose of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. But it was also God's doing. God ordered it. God was in control. And in spite of significant opposition. God ordered the death of Jesus Christ. For us. Keep that in your mind. As we go throughout. These remaining two weeks. Of our Easter season. We will see dramas about it. Next week we will have a musical about it. And I tell you. Grieve. Weep for what Jesus did for you, but always remember God was in control. Now in our text this morning, chapter 26 of the book of Matthew, it picks up the narrative at the end of the Olivet, what is described of as as the Olivet Discourse, which Jesus had just finished. Jesus had been to the temple. He had been teaching once again, as he always did. And he had been exhorting the Jewish religious leaders, for the hypocritical, ungodliness. But then upon leaving the temple, he says to his disciples, he orders them, to, let's go up to the temple. I mean, let's go up to the Mount of Olives and let's sit there. And he wanted to begin to share with him about his second coming. And he talks about it in chapter 24. He gives a warning, number one. And Jesus says, see that no one leads you astray. Jesus speaking to them. He's preparing them for his second coming. He said, people are going to lead you astray during the second coming of Jesus Christ. If my voice cracks, my son plays baseball and we lost yesterday, brother Nathaniel. And I hollered and hollered to get him to run and stuff. So I lost my voice a little bit, but bear with me. Okay. There was a warning. Do not be led astray. He gave a warning to hear rumors of wars. He gave a warning that In the second coming, you will see earthquakes, you'll see famines. All of these things that we're seeing in our midst today, Jesus spoke about in the 24th chapter of the book of Matthew, when he talks about the second coming of Jesus Christ. And on this mount, he also reminds us that no one knows the time or the hour in which Jesus, not even the angels know when Jesus will return to the earth. He also teaches once again, and he teaches about the ten virgins about the ones who had the oil a lamp, and they went away to refuel their oil. And the bridegroom came, came, and they were not there, and they were not present. The door was always sh- already shut. He gave the parable of the talents. He gave the parable of the sheep and the goats. And he set the sheep on one side and the goats on the other side. Powerful teaching that Jesus did throughout this on this Mount of Olives. He is now portrayed to his disciples. But now he takes some to Bethany. And he begins his journey down to Bethany. And he sits there with his disciples and for the fourth time the Lord brought them back to the central reality of his coming here for the first time. Four times he's going to tell them. You look back in chapter 16 of the book of Matthew. It says for the time Jesus began to show his disciples verse number 21 that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised up. Number one. The second time, chapter 17, And they were gathering in Galilee. Jesus said to them in verse number 22, And the Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him, and he will be raised on the third day. The third time in chapter 20, Jesus said, He was going to the Jerusalem and he took the 12 disciples and set them aside. And he said to them, see, we are going up to Jerusalem and the son of man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified. And he will be raised on the third day. And then he comes to chapter 26 that we have just read. And he says in chapter two, two words you know. Disciples, this is one time, two times, three times. This is the fourth time I'm telling you. You know, you know that after two days of Passover is coming and the Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. It was about four years ago, my dad called me one morning and he said, grandmother, his mother, he said, grandmother, we had to carry it to the hospital. And we've realized that She has an aneurysm in her chest. She has some discomfort. She was 88 years old, I believe, 87, 88 years old at the time. And he said, there's nothing they can do for her. She's just there, says she probably won't even make it through the night. You know, we just put her in the hospital because she was a little uncomfortable. But there's actuality, she cannot have surgery. She had had a stroke about some 10 years before that. There's nothing we can do about it. In other words, there was this bomb in her chest. That at any moment was already ballooned up and was at the peak of rupturing. And there she knew that her death was just hours or a few days away. Well, actually, it lasted about four or five days. And Daddy says, We gotta take her home. There's nothing that she's just laying in the hospital. There's nothing, she's fine, she doesn't hurt, there's nothing wrong with her. She just got this aneurysm that at any moment's gonna explode. She knew that her death was imminent. And I called him one morning, I think it was a Friday morning. And I said, how's grandmother? Doing great. She's worked great. After about 10 minutes in the conversation, he said, let me go. She's wanting me right now. And I said, all right, I'll call you back. In about 10 minutes, they called me back. She had passed away. She felt the discomfort. But she knew of her death. And these disciples knew through scripture and through Jesus teaching and through Jesus telling them over and over again, my death is coming. I know it. God knows it, it's ordered of God, and you know it as well. So for Jesus himself, the crucifixion was the next major event in the Messiah's mission. Before he should return in power and in glory, he must die and willing and humble death upon the cross. So the first two verses of chapter 26 contain our Lord's declaration regarding his imminent death. And he is reminding them, once again, that he will be crucified, but he will also be crucified on his own terms. This is very important to realize. And I'm going to show you in just a little bit. It wasn't on the terms of the scribes and the Pharisees. It was on God's terms that Jesus would be crucified. You remember Pilate told Jesus, says, I have authority over you. I have authority to take you down. I have the the authority to release you. I have the authority to crucify you. And Jesus says, you have no authority unless it comes from the Father above. God is in control. I remind you, I should have titled this message, God is in control because God is in control at Easter time. So on Wednesday, two days before Passover, Jesus reminds the disciples that he will be handed over to the Gentiles to be crucified. Joseph was betrayed by his brother Judah, to the hand of the Midianites for the price of a slave. Samson was betrayed by the men of Judah to the Philistines. And now Jesus will be betrayed by Jesus. The possibility of our Lord's death had probably haunted these disciples for some times. If you were to look back at Matthew chapter 2, Jesus Herod was sought after to kill Jesus as a little infant. But it wasn't God's time. God was in control. You remember Jesus healed the the withered man's hand. And the Pharisees sought to kill Jesus. But God was in control. It wasn't Jesus' time to die. They sought to kill Jesus. They sought to throw him over a cliff. Jesus walked into the synagogue in Nazareth. And there he proclaimed to be the great Messiah. He brought salvation to the Jews and the Gentiles. So they threatened to, to kill him and throw him over a cliff. But God was in control. It wasn't Jesus' time. Jesus did most of his teaching in Galilee because the Jews in Judea sought to kill him every time he went there. But it wasn't God's time. All of these attempts to kill Jesus and perhaps others that are not recorded failed because God's timing or God's way for the Son of Man to die was in God's timing. The great sovereign grace of God was the only thing that could send Jesus to the cross. It wasn't human power that could send Jesus to the cross. And it wasn't human power that could stop Jesus from going to the cross. Only God himself could send Jesus to the cross. So you remember Thomas. Lazarus was raised from the dead. And Thomas, Didymus, Mr. Doubtful. He said to his fellow disciples, let's go with Jesus. Let's follow him so that we can die with him also. And so the disciples, they go to Bethany with Jesus. Jesus. But why did they want to kill Jesus? Well, if you look over in John's recording, this recording is also in the 14th chapter of Mark and in the 12th chapter of John. But John chapter 11 tells us why they wanted to kill Jesus. Was it because he preached on the Sabbath? Was it all these other reasons? Let me show you. Verse number 47. So the chief priests and the Pharisees, gathered the council and said what are we do to do for this man performs many signs this is just right after jesus raised lazarus from the dead if we let him go like this everyone will believe in him and the romans will come and take him away to the place of our nation in other words these scribes and pharisees they were scared for their jobs Jesus was gaining popularity. Jesus was gaining momentum. And they knew if Jesus continued to to do these signs and wonders, that the popularity of Jesus was going to increase and increase and increase. What do these dictators do in foreign countries when this rebel group or this leader of a rebel group begins to get momentum, begins to get popularity? Well, they'll try to kill him, number one, if they can, if they can get away with it. But if they can't do that, they'll... Rest them, lock them up in jail so they don't have a voice. And that's the case that Jesus was in, in this instance. He was gaining popularity, and so these guys, they were getting worried. They said, we're gonna lose our jobs if we allow Jesus to continue this popularity and continue to increase after, and, and, and threaten our jobs. But Jesus was becoming so popular that they said, we gotta stop this man. This man, we gotta somehow get this man and stop him from what he's doing. Verse number 49, but one of them, Caiaphas, who was a high priest that year, said to them, for you know nothing at all. It was none other than Caiaphas, the high priest, who sought to kill Jesus, who ordered this, who arranged this. Caiaphas was a conniving, was a was a treacherous, was a deceitful man, depicted in the scriptures. He was one of Jesus' antagonists, just like Herod. He was always out to find wrong with Jesus so that he could threaten him and so he could kill Jesus. So Caiaphas says, his famous verse in number 50, Nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people than the whole nation should perish. He did not say this for his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die For the nation, and not the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. So from that day on, they made plans to put Jesus to death. Was it for theological reasons? It was all for political reasons. It was all because their political position was being threatened. The high priesthood traditionally was passed down through the Levitical line. But now during Roman conquership, the the priesthood was given as a favor, or it was uh, bought for, it was sold off to be the priest or the high priest. But here, uh, uh, Caiaphas was rather smart, so he married the daughter of Annas. And so now he was in the Levitical line as well as through the Roman imperial. He was able to to gain control of the priesthood. And actually served for quite a long time. For 22 years. Which was a long time for a priest to serve at that time. His successor served for only 50 days. So here Caiaphas is one that he's threatening. he says we got to stop this man. We got to put this man to death. For after our Lord's triumphal entry and taking possession of Jerusalem and the temple. The Jewish elite were terrified by the threat that Jesus posed. And so they conspired to put Jesus to death. And so it says in verse number four, they plotted to put Jesus to death back in chapter 26 by stealth and to kill him. Stealth was by secret. In other words, they didn't want anybody to know because of the popularity that Jesus was gaining. They did not want anybody to know that they were going to put Jesus to death. There were two things that they didn't want to do. They didn't want to crucify him because that was very public death. Their preferred way was probably stoning at that time. And the second thing was, you remember Jesus says in two days before Passover, one thing they did not want to do was they did not want to kill him during Passover week. Josephus says that sometimes 250,000 sacrifices were offered up. Law said it had to have 10 people per sacrifice. So we were looking at over 2 million people that were going to be gathered for the feast of Passover. So to kill Jesus at that time, in other words, people had to come from Galilee where Jesus had been, where he had gained great popularity. People from Galilee who was just a short distance away had to come in and be with be with at the feast of the Passover. So if they went and they slaughtered Jesus, if they crucified him, whatever the means might be, and they did that during Passover. They would have, as the scripture said, they didn't want to create a riot. They didn't want to create confusion. So the idea was, let's take Jesus. Let's arrest him. Let's put him in jail. Let's shut him up for two weeks while we have the Passover week. And then after the Passover week, after everybody's gone home, then we will crucify Jesus or stone him or whatever the terms of death. They would sought to kill Jesus at that time. So here is a dilemma. You remember I said at the beginning, this is very important. Here is a dilemma. God is in control. Jesus told his disciples he would die during Passover in just two days. But the Jewish leaders agreed that he must not be killed for nearly two weeks. Jesus said that he would die by crucifixion and that the Romans would be involved. In other words, Jesus indicated that his death would be brought about by a very public matter and it would involve much suffering And persecution, where the Jewish leaders proposed to wait until after the feast. But Jesus said he must die during the feast, the Passover of the Lamb. No two plans for his death could be more diametrically opposed. What Jesus told his disciples would happen was exactly what the Jewish leader says would not happen. In other words, something's got to give. I mean, you like old Westerns. You know, battle at the O.K. Corral. You know, got your six shooters on. Something's got to give. You know, this is the Democrats versus the Republicans. Budget battle, you know. This is the PLP versus the F&M. It's black. No, it's white. No, it's white. No, it's black. Something's got to give. Who's in control? God is in control. Throughout all of Easter, remember, God is in control. So who do you think is going to win? God is going to win. It doesn't matter what the Jewish leaders say, how, what, when, where. God was in control, and he would brought Jesus to the cross in his due time. And Jesus says, God says, Jesus said, in two days. In two days, they will crucify me. So now let's go to Bethany it's supper time. Who do we have there? We have Simon, the leper. Simon obviously had leprosy. He was a man who wouldn't even have a home in Bethany if he had leprosy at that time. He wouldn't even have Mary and Martha, as as John says, Mary and Martha and Lazarus was also at the table. They wouldn't be there. So Simon was a man who obviously Jesus healed in some past time, and he had them in for supper. He says, let's come. We see Mary there. We see Martha there. You remember Martha? Martha is always the one that when you went to the house, Martha probably cooked the dinner. She set the table nice and pretty. She took the food up. She set the plate down in front of you. She cleaned the food up when you were finished. She cleaned the kitchen. And then about the time everybody was ready to go home, Martha was finishing up all of her duties. Mr. Sands, you should have named your daughter Martha. My wife, if you've ever been to my house my wife is a Martha. She walks in the house, you walk in the house, she serves you, she cooks it, she puts it before you, and Lord in heaven's sakes, don't turn your back, because if you turn your back and you fork those idle for a few seconds, your plate's gone, okay, Brother Anthon. Literally, folks, I've gone and been eating my food, gone to get me a glass of tea, come back, my plate's gone, all right? She was a Martha, but Martha's in the house. But you know, Martha was always saying, you know, look at my sister over here. All she's doing is sit doing nothing. She's sitting at Jesus' feet. She ain't doing a thing. And Jesus always rebukes her, says, Martha, leave her alone. She knows what she's doing. And there's Lazarus there. Lazarus, buddy, he's just glad to be there. He was dead for four days. He stunk, right? Lazarus just says, y'all deal with it yourself, sisters. I'm out of it. I'm just glad to be sitting here eating. I'm enjoying this. So here we have the 12 disciples. We have Jesus. We have Simon the leper. Boy, what a group we have. We have Mary. We have Martha. We have Lazarus, who's been raised from the dead for four, after four days. And then it says in verse number 7, this is the meat of our sermon, and a woman, who we know is Mary, came up to him with an alabaster flask, a very expensive ointment. This ointment was about 12 ounces of pure nard. Nard was a uh, oil that you got from the root of a plant uh, uh, or the spike of a plant. You would find this plant in, in Tibet, India, up in the northern mountains of India. Very expensive because it was great trouble to go and get this plant. To get this root and bring it in, and, and to extract the oil out of it. Very expensive oil. The oil sometimes they said the, the, the amount that this Mark says was probably 300 denarii which was a, a, a salary, a year's salary of a common laborer or a soldier, 300 denarii. But here, Martha, she has this, this flask. Even the, the alabaster box that she has, the, the vial that she has, was in itself very expensive. It cost a lot too. And Mark says, Mary comes with this very expensive a, a, a box of alabaster, and of oil. And Mark says, she breaks it. And the oil flows upon Jesus. Mary. Mary. Where do we always find Mary? At the feet of Jesus. In other words, Mary was always worshiping at the feet of Jesus. Mary was always consumed when Jesus was in the house, Martha was serving, or Martha was cooking the dinner, Mary was at the feet of Jesus, always worshiping, always giving her all in sacrifice to Jesus. For Mary understood what the disciples did not want to understand, that Jesus had to die in order to be raised again. Why? Because she was always at the feet of Jesus. Unlike them, she was not caught up in the carnal or the selfish desire for Christ to establish his earthly ministry or his earthly kingdom immediately in order to share in his glory and privilege that that event would be. Mary was always at the feet of Jesus, worshiping Jesus. And then it said, and she poured it on his head as Jesus reclined at the table that was prepared. Mary takes this precious perfume, this years of wages, this alabaster box, and she breaks it. In an adoring testimony of love and honor, Mary poured it out her soul in worship, even as she poured out this precious perfume upon the head of Jesus Christ. Why was she able to do that? Because she was always at the feet of Jesus, worshiping, Consumed with Jesus as her Lord and Savior. Mary at the feet of Jesus. Mary wasn't worried about the, the alabaster box and about the price of it. She didn't say it could go to support some program. All she wanted to do was give it to Jesus. She didn't say I could get some tangible benefit out of this box of oil and this alabaster box. But she offered her earthly possessions To Jesus Christ. Once again. Folks this ought to register something within our mind. When we come into a service. Week after week. Or whether it be in our home. Day after day. We have to get to the feet of Jesus Christ. We have to get back to the altar. That Jesus has prepared for us. And we have to worship Jesus. Day in and day out. We have to give our all. in sacrifice. And get at the feet of Jesus. And when we do that, Jesus will hear our faintest cry. If you will humble yourselves, turn from your wicked way, then will I heal your nation. Then, if you will worship me, if the church will get back to the altar, then will I heal the nation once again. Mary, think about it folks, Mary is at the precious feet of Jesus Worshiping her Lord and Savior. And when the disciples saw it, they were indigenous saying, why this waste? For this could have been sold for a large sum and given to the poor. Yeah, right, buddy. Who are you trying to fool? You worried about the money? You worried about giving this money, this oil, about selling this oil and giving it to the poor? That was your main concern? Why didn't they give the money to Matthew? Well, he was a tax collector. Let's give it to Judas. He's the treasurer of the church. Come on. Judas says, yeah, but we could have sold this stuff. What was Judas interested in? He wasn't interested in giving the money to the poor. He was a thief. Judas wanted the money for himself. And here they were worried about it. And then it says in verse number 10, But Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why do you trouble this woman? For she has done... A beautiful thing for me. For you always have the poor with you. But you will not always. Have me with you. Now Jesus had just taught about the sheep and the goats. He just said. When you were hungry. You fed me. When they were naked. You clothed me. So on and so forth. The goats they didn't do what they were supposed to do. The sheep enter. The goats don't. We remember reading that parable. But now. Jesus says. Don't worry about the poor. Jesus was going to the cross. And Mary knew the destination of Jesus. And she was concerned with getting Jesus. And worshiping Jesus. She wasn't ser- concerned about being a philanthropist at that time. She was wor- worried about adoration for her Lord and Savior. She wasn't worried about a charity event at that time. She was worried about worshiping Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. Folks, listen to me. Genuine worship is a supreme service that a Christian can give. We have... Operation in as much wonderful ministry, but that's not the supreme sacrifice that a Christian can give. We have care kitchen. We feed the poor. We feed the less unfortunate, but that, that is not the supreme sacrifice of a Christian Witnessing is not the supreme sacrifice of a Christian Discipling new believers is great and it's important, but it is not the supreme sacrifice that a Christian can, can give Bible study, teaching the Word of God is wonderful. It is a necessity for the Word of God, but it's not the ultimate sacrifice. The ultimate sacrifice that the child of God can give is genuine, pure worship to our Lord and Savior who died on the cross some 2,000 years ago. And folks, when we give worship, supreme, ultimate sacrifice of worship, then all of these other things come into order. And God blesses Awana. God blesses the youth. God blesses the choir. God blesses the Sunday morning service. God blesses every ministry that is done at Calvary Bible Church when we make our supreme sacrifice and worship to Jesus Christ. So many of us, I'll preach to myself. I won't preach to you. I come in this service and I come oftentimes, wonder what time we're going to get out. Wonder what time, how long is this going to last? But it's all about worshiping Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Jesus said, if I if I be lifted up, I will draw all men unto me. How do we lift up Jesus? Through our worship, through our praise and adoration. This woman did not ask, Mary did not ask, how much does this oil cost? She did not say, do I have the time to give this oil? The true worshiper gives Jesus whatever he has, knowing that it is trifling compared to what Jesus did. For us at Calvary. And in pouring this ointment on my body. She has done it to prepare me for burial. I don't even think Mary was even thinking this. She was so consumed with Jesus. She wasn't even probably wasn't even contemplating that. This is the last thing when Jesus is crucified. One of the important things. of first century funerals was the oil. How precious the oil was. Because of the decaying body. They didn't have embalming. They used the oil, the perfume to decay the odor that was amongst them. But here, Mary, in her adoration, in her praise and worship to Jesus Christ, she took the oil and she broke it. And she prepared Jesus for burial. But truly, I say to you, wherever this gospel is proclaimed, in the whole world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. This is an example to all Christians of unselfishness, of sacrificial adoration. What this one woman did at the feet of Jesus. There wasn't a public fanfare. There wasn't a call for everyone to come around. There wasn't news that Jesus was in the house. It was 12 disciples. It was Simon. It was the others that were there. But Mary and her consumed for Jesus fell before him and worshiped him. One writer I read this week says this is the greatest story that was ever told. Folks, what I want you to see this morning is that alabaster box. Get that box in your mind. Precious. Precious. Fine china. Full of oil. Anointing oil. Here's this box. Before us. And Mary took that box. And she broke it. The oil poured on his head. On his feet. Mark says she took her hair down. Which was a disgrace in that one time. For a woman to do. She took her hair down. And she began to wipe. The feet of Jesus. Jesus who was just hours away. From his death. Was anointed. By none other. Than Mary. You see, when Jesus died on the cross, and you accepted Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, I believe the Lord, Brother Jerry, put an alabaster box within our heart. But so many of us are afraid to take the box and break the box. We hold on to the box. It's a precious box. It's an expensive box. It has precious perfume. I'll just hold on to my box. And I'll keep it for myself. The Word of God says we've been given hope, joy, love. And the greatest of these is love. But many of us want to hold that love in for ourselves. Many of us come into the service and we hear these songs that we heard this morning. Then sings my soul, my Savior God to thee. How great thou art. And them Holy Ghost Duda just began to go all over us. But we hold the box. And we don't break it. Jesus says, take the box. Break the box. And allow others to be blessed. Allow the the joy to flow out. So that others amongst you can see the joy. That the adoration that you had for your Lord and Savior allow the love that you have within you, allow that box to be broken and give that love to others among us. But to do that we have to be at the feet of Jesus. There's a wonderful story brother Campola, Tony Campola you may have heard this story. Tony Campola was a sociologist slash preacher some years ago, Tony Campolo went to Hawaii. He was from Philadelphia. So if you go to Philadelphia to Hawaii from Philadelphia, at 3 o'clock in the morning, Tony Campolo woke up. Time clock hadn't changed. And he was hungry. So he said, I'm not going to sit here. So Tony Campola went down and found a little diner down an alleyway. He called it a greasy spoon probably can realize what he's talking about. But Tony Campola went down this alleyway, found this little diner, didn't even have tables in it. All they had was the counter and just some, some stools to sit on. Not even any tables there, a little small place. And he looked around, he wasn't that impressed with the restaurant, the hygiene of the restaurant. So he said, just give me some coffee. Give me, some, give me a donut. So the guy behind the counter, Harry, put out a cigar got him a donut. got him a coffee, sat it before him. There Tony began to eat his donut and coffee. Three-thirty, almost three-thirty on the dot, a swarm of prostitutes comes and sits in his garden. On either side, Tony Campola was these prostitutes. Sorry. I play this story over my mind I, every time I get emotional. There it was, these prostitutes, one right beside him, told their friend beside her, says, Hey, tomorrow's my birthday. Says, I'm going to be 39 years old. And her friend's response was, Oh, what? What do you want me to do about it? You want me to sing happy birthday to you? You want me to buy you a present? You want me to throw you a birthday party? And she responded and said, you didn't have to be so mean about it. I'm just letting you know tomorrow's my birthday. Says, it doesn't matter. I've never had a birthday party in my life. So it doesn't matter to me if you have one for me or not. Tony Campola waited around. The prostitutes left, went on their ways. Tony asked Harry, says, Harry, says, you know this one did they come in here every night? He said, 3.30 on the dot. They're in here. He said, you heard that one? He said, yeah, that's Agnes. Says she says her birthday is tomorrow. What would you mind if we throw Agnes a birthday party? I say yes. Yeah. Says we'll throw a birthday party. He hollers to his wife, honey. He wants to have a birthday party for Agnes. Says oh that's great. Says I know what Agnes does isn't great. She lives a bad life. Says she's really a sweet person. I think that would be wonderful. Harry the cigar smoking waiter there says oh I'll cook the birthday cake. Don't worry about the cake. I'll take care of the cake. So 2.30, the next morning, Tony Campola goes to this diner. He decorates it. Beautiful balloons, everything. Got a sign, happy birthday, Agnes. The wife had notified everybody around it, we're going to have a birthday party for Agnes. So there about 3.15, here's Tony Campola, sociologist slash preacher in a little old diner, on the alleyway in Honolulu with, a, with wall-to-wall prostitutes. And there he is. And right on the dot, 3.30, in walks Agnes. Happy birthday, Agnes! And Agnes just buckles. She cannot believe it. 39 years, nobody ever loved her to give her birthday party. And 39 years of her life. Agnes, blow out your candles agnes all she could do was cry and they said agnes cut your cake she said wait 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 says i've, I've never had a birthday cake says would you would you mind if i take my birthday cake and, and take it down to to my mother i'm just two blocks away let me take it let me let me show my mother what a birthday cake looks like Tony says you can do what you want it's your birthday cake so she takes the birthday cake and she leaves so there's Tony Campola in this diner, deathly quiet, Water to wall prostitutes. So what do you do, Brother Clinton, when you got wall-to-wall prostitutes and you're a preacher sociologist and it's deathly quiet? Tony says, let's pray. <laughs> in other words, let's get to the feet of Jesus. And Tony prays for Agnes. He prays for Agnes and her health and for what she's doing in life and that God would free her from this. And he prays. And when he finishes praying, old Harry says, "Dampola, you never told me you was a preacher. He said, what kind of church you preach at? And Tony says, in one of those instances where just something blurts out, but it's the right thing. He says, I preach at the church that throws birthday parties for prostitutes at 3.30 in the morning. And Harry said, no, you don't. No yet, not says, there's no such church as that. Because if there was a church like that, that's where I'd go to church. I'd go to a church that threw birthday parties for prostitutes. Folks, I got news for you. Jesus wants us to get to the feet of the cross. And that our love will just pour out. That we'll take the alabaster box that is at the feet of Jesus and we'll break it. And that we'll show love For those who the world doesn't love. That we'll give to those that the world doesn't want to give. That's what Easter is about my friend. Supreme worship to our Lord and Savior. Jesus Christ. That's why we come here. That's what we remember. God was in control. So worship Jesus Christ. As God ordained. No one ever cared for us. Like our Jesus. Charles Wiggle wrote that song many years ago. In the deepest depression, his wife left him as an evangelist. He thought no one cared for him. But he said, oh, no one ever cared for me like Jesus. There's no other friend so kind and true. That's the kind of Jesus that we celebrate this Easter. Heads are bowed, eyes are closed. Father, we thank you. For this message that you have prepared us today. If there's anyone here this morning, you have your alabaster box and you said, Brother Brad, I've been holding on to this box, but I need to take this box this morning. I need to break it. I need to smash this box. This box is full of love. It's full of hope. It's full of joy. It's full of all of the fruits of the spirit, but I've been holding it on to myself. I need to break it this morning. And I need to offer it up to our Lord and Savior who died on the cross. You're here this morning. I'm raising my hand. Will you join me this morning? Anybody else here says, I need to break my alabaster box this morning of love and joy and peace. So, Father, we see the hands. You know the hearts. We ask you right now, Lord, to allow us to worship and to break the box and give it to you in our adoration and our worship. We don't want to think about it. We don't care about the cost. We just want to give our all in all to you just as you did on Calvary's cross.